0: I'm really excited to be able to just meditate on the scriptures with you tonight. And so I'm just excited for the opportunity. Why don't we start off? Um, let's go to the Lord together. Father, I thank you so much um, for your people, Lord. We thank you so much for your word. I just pray, Lord, that as you've given us this, uh, just this very sacred time in the week, Lord, to be able to, to look at your word together and to hear it preached. I pray that you would send your spirit here with us. Lord, that you would give us understanding, Lord, but that you would also give us um, hearts that are receptive, Lord, that you would bend our wills to you tonight. So just come and meet with us, Lord. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would meet with the God of the Exodus tonight. It's in Christ's name that I pray, amen. So as we come to uh, Exodus chapter 15 tonight, I think it's important for us to start by thinking about the importance of music in our lives. Uh, I'm the kind of person, I pretty much soundtrack my entire life. So if I'm working, I'm listening to music. If I'm exercising, which is pretty rare, then I'm also listening to music. If I'm driving in my car, I'm listening to music. And that's the way that our home is as well. Uh, Whenever Emma and I, whenever we play together, or whenever we're working and picking up in the house, there's a lot of music and dancing going on. Uh, Emma, she likes to listen to movie soundtracks. Uh, So we listen to Frozen songs, or we listen to uh, the Lion King soundtrack, or Beauty and the Beast. This is just the way that we do things around our house. I think that though music is something that we all enjoy, and songs are something that bring us a lot of joy, I think also that music is more than that. I actually think that we're, we're hardwired for music and for song. Um, consider this. In the 20th century, we saw the rise of the profession of uh, music therapy. Okay, music therapy is basically where we've discovered that um, children with fine motor skill problems or uh, war veterans with emotional trauma, we can actually help treat these problems using, some, using music as a tool. Um, and so we see that it's actually part of who we are. And this isn't something that's new. We see that humanity has always um, has always been interested in music. I actually wanted to show you guys a picture of something tonight. Um, so we have this up here. This comes from uh, this cave in Germany. I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, but I think it's the Fels cave in Germany. Uh, there's a cave here where we have some of the most ancient human artifacts that have ever been discovered, they think that these are artifacts from the very first humans to migrate into Europe. And among the artifacts, they found this flute. This is a flute that's actually made from the bone of a griffin vulture. They also found flutes made from uh, mammoth tusk as well. And this reminds me of the fact that in the book of Genesis, in the very first genealogy that we come to in Genesis 4, we're actually told about the invention of music. And so we see that now... And a long time ago, music has always been a big part of who we are as humans. So it's no surprise that the Bible contains a lot of songs. And tonight as we come to Exodus 15, we come to one of the most ancient songs in the Bible. Now Exodus 15 is a song that goes by a lot of different names. Uh, so one, some people call the song in Exodus 15 the Song of Moses. And the reason that they call it the Song of Moses is pretty clear from verse 1. Here it says that Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. Um, I personally don't call Exodus 15 the Song of Moses. The reason I don't do that is because there's another Song of Moses in the Bible, and that's in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And so just for sake of confusion, I don't call it the Song of Moses. But some people mean this when they say that. Some people call Exodus 15 the Song of Miriam. This comes from verse 21 in chapter 15, where we're actually told that Miriam and the women sing as well. It's not entirely clear exactly what's going on here, but it seems to me that what verse 21 is describing is like an antiphonal singing of the song. Now, for those of you who aren't like music majors, what that means is like the men sing one part of the song and then the women sing in response. So some people call this the song of Miriam. And then finally, some people just call this the song of the sea or the song at the sea, which this is what I'm going to refer to Exodus 15 as tonight. If you hear me say song of the sea or the song at the sea, I'm talking about the song here in Exodus 15. And the reason I like this is because this reminds us of the context of what's going on here. What we have here is a celebratory song of praise that Israel is singing to the Lord after he has rescued them from Egypt uh, through the miracle at the Red Sea. So here we come to the song at the sea. And as we come to this, it's important that we see that there's two main ways that the Bible presents songs to us. Uh, First, sometimes the Bible will take a lot of songs and bring them all together and put it in one book. This would be like the book of Psalms, right? Almost like what we would think of like a hymn book where they collect all the songs together. But a second way, sometimes what the Bible will do is it will actually put songs within stories. So you're reading a story, you're following the plot, and then all of a sudden the characters in the story break out into song. They sing a song. So we call these inset songs. Now This might seem unusual, but this is actually a feature of the production of literature that continues even until today. Think about a Broadway musical. How does a Broadway musical work? Well, you have a plot, right? You have a storyline. You have a lot of dialogue between characters. But what are the parts of the musical that like get stuck in your Get stuck in your head for like the next two weeks, and what and what are the parts of, of the musical that actually carry the main message of the production? Well, there's a reason we call it a musical, right? It's the songs that really carry uh, the main message of the story, and they're the parts that stick in our memory. Now, I myself, I've never uh, never been to Broadway, uh, but I do remember one of my first Valentine's Day dates with Sarah. Um, I, if I recall right, it was in February of 2006. So we're looking at it 11 years ago. And if my, if my date is correct on that, it means I had had my driver's license for about 10 months. And uh, so I did not take Sarah to Broadway. I took Sarah to a local theater company's production of The Sound of Music. Uh, now, I actually, for whatever reason, I've actually never seen the Julie Andrews movie. So I've, I've never, so my, literally my only experience with The Sound of Music was this Valentine's Day date with Sarah in 2006. And what's remarkable is I can generally remember the gist of the plot uh, of the of the play. I don't remember any of the dialogue. I don't remember any exact phrases but I remember quite a few of the songs. I know that the hills are alive with the sounds of music with sounding music. Uh, I know that a doe is a deer, a female deer, and I remember a teenage girls singing about being 16, going on 17. So even, even over a decade later, I still remember those parts. So now as we come back here to Exodus chapter 15, I want you to think about the book of Exodus like a landscape. And know that as we're dealing with the landscape of the, books, the book of Exodus, we're not dealing with just a flat plain. We're dealing with a book that has a rich, intricate topography. We have plains and bogs and valleys and mountains. Now, as we come to Exodus 15, we come really to the mountain peak of the book of Exodus. This is the culmination of the Exodus as Israel has now been freed from slavery in Egypt and they worship their God on the eastern shore of the Red Sea. Now, as we get ready to actually jump into the text and see what God has for us here, I think it's important that we consider Uh, one other issue, and that is this question. Why is the Song of the Sea in the Bible? Why do we have Exodus 15 in the Bible? In the story, Moses and Israel sing this song to the Lord after he parts the Red Sea. But Exodus 15 isn't in the Bible for Moses and Israel to read, is it? This song is not for them. I also don't think that we have Exodus 15 in the Bible just for history's sake. This isn't just so that we know what happened. It's very important that you see that, that this is here. The Song of the Sea is in the book of Exodus for the person who reads the book of Exodus. This song is here because it addresses you, O oh reader, O oh hearer of the book of Exodus. And, and it is itself an invitation to the reader to join in with Moses and Israel in praising the God of the Exodus. So as we approach this song, as it is addressing us and telling us to join in this song of praise to the Lord, I want to ask two questions. We're going to frame our whole time with these two questions. Question number one, why can we sing? Why can we sing the song of the sea? And then our second question is what should we sing? And as we go through, uh, as we go through the text of the song of the sea, we're going to basically look at this in two parts. Part number one, uh, we're going to look in the first 12 verses Uh, This song gives us a portrait of who the God of the Exodus is. Who has God made himself known to be? So we'll call this singing about the God of the Exodus. And then the second part, we're going to look in verses 13 through 18. uh, We have where we're actually told what the purpose of the Exodus is. So we'll talk about singing about the goal of the Exodus. So as we get started here in part 1, verses 1 through 12, I think that the main idea of who God is in the Exodus that we see here in the Song at the Sea comes in verse 3. This is where the statement is made, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. What a magnificent picture of who the Lord is. The Lord is a warrior. And what we're going to see here in the passage is that the Lord being a warrior is a sword that cuts two ways. There are two sides of the coin of what it means for the Lord to be a warrior. And that's for two different groups of people in the story, right? For Israel and for Egypt. So let's talk, let's think about those two groups of people. First of all, what does it mean for Israel that the Lord is a warrior? Well, verse two makes it very clear, the the verse that precedes this, where where Israel sings, The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. So for the Lord to be a warrior for Israel, it means their salvation. So, so what we see is that the point is, is that the God of the Exodus is a warrior who delivers his people. And This is what it means for Israel and recalls what we see in the narrative before that, in the story that comes in verse, in chapter 14, which uh, Andy and the worship team read for us. If you'll recall what it said there came a very pivotal point in the story where Israel was trapped in between the sea and the chariots of Egypt. And they actually despaired of life itself. If you remember, they sarcastically asked Moses, was it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here in the wilderness to die? And let's remember, let's just read it again. Let's, Let's recall what Moses tells them. Looks like I didn't put a slide for it. I'll just read it. How about that? So here's what, uh, here's what Moses says. As Moses answered the people. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Now hear this. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still so the lord is fighting for his people to deliver them from their oppressors. Now I think that this verse is really interesting not only because it shows us the lord as a warrior who's fighting for his people, but it also shows what's the right way to respond to the lord's deliverance. Is the lord the lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. As this reminds us that the story of the Exodus, it's not a story of like this great uprising and revolution of Israel throwing off the rule of the Egyptians and going out. It's a story of a people who are helpless and enslaved. And we see in this story what happens at the Red Sea is that they're helpless, trapped in between the sea and Pharaoh's army. And this is, this is all about how the Lord comes and rescues them from this, and there's nothing that they can do to add to that. And so within the the truth that the Lord is a warrior who fights to deliver his people, there is implicit a command that we rest in the salvation that he brings. So because the Lord is a warrior who delivers his people, let us trust in him. Now for this, I brought with me tonight, I brought my uh, very first uh, Hebrew Bible. And I brought this with me because... I'll always remember the way that I got this Hebrew Bible, which I'm sure sure that relates to all of you. I'm sure everyone remembers how you got your first Hebrew Bible, right? (laughs) So what happened is I was a college sophomore, and I was in my first semester of elementary Hebrew. And my class, we had eight people in the class. There were six of us that were like, traditional college students. And then there were two middle-aged women in the class who were not seeking a degree. They just wanted to come and learn Hebrew. And their names were Barbara and Sharon. I had a problem at the beginning of my class, and that was this, that we had to have a Hebrew Bible beginning first week of the class. We had to have a Hebrew Bible with us in class. But the college's bookstore hadn't gotten their Hebrew Bibles in yet. And I was stubborn, and I didn't want to go out and buy one on my own. I wanted to wait until the bookstore got there, so I didn't have a Hebrew Bible for class. And one day in class, towards the beginning of class, uh, Sharon, she sat across the table from me. She gave me this Bible. She handed this Bible to me. She said, Terry, I want you to have my Hebrew Bible. I have another one uh, that actually has larger print that I'd rather use. I want you to have this one. And after a polite refusal, I took the Bible from her. And I said, I said, Sharon, what can I pay you for this Bible? And I'll never forget what Sharon said in response. She just very calmly said, what do you say to someone who gives you a gift? In church, you and I know that trying to pay for a gift only insults the giver. You know that the correct answer to that question is you say thank you to people who give you a gift. And in the same way, and in light of this, the story of the Bible is not a story about great men and women who rise up to save themselves. The story of the Bible is a story about people who are slaves to sin and to wickedness and to suffering and to pain and to death. And a great warrior God who enters into the story to deliver them, who actually takes their sin on himself and pays for it and brings it down to the grave and who comes out like a victorious warrior from the grave, defeating death itself. And so what we see tonight is that Jesus is offering us freedom and salvation and he is not seeking repayment. He's seeking people who are ready to receive his forgiveness with gratitude and to rest in the work that he has done. And so because the Lord is a warrior who delivers his people, we're called to rest in him and to trust in him as our Savior. And so with this, I just want to ask two questions. First of all, have you ever trusted in Jesus to save you? Have you ever turned from your sins and put your faith in him? If not, don't delay. Don't delay. If you, if you wait until you're better, you'll never come at all. What better time than now to, to put your faith in Jesus? And then, second, for those of you tonight who you've already uh, put your faith in Jesus, let me ask you this Are you still resting in Jesus? See, resting in what Jesus has done to deliver us, it's not the ABCs of Christianity that we grow up and leave behind. But resting in what Jesus has done for us is the A to Z of Christianity. This is the fuel that keeps the fire of our faith ablaze. So I would just, I would just encourage you, um, maybe find a time this weekend just to get along with the Lord and just thank him and just again Rest in the work that Jesus has done for you. So we see that because the Lord is a warrior, he delivers his people. So we're called to trust in him and to rest in him. And as we think about these things, I also realize that with all of us in the room, but there are a lot of anxieties on all of our hearts and all of our minds. And there's a lot of you maybe are in seasons of difficult suffering. So as we think about this, you know this is like a mean thing to do, but I want to ask you, like, bring those things to mind. Like, bring to mind right now the things that cause you anxiety or that are causing you heartache in your life right now. And I just want us to consider this. If Christ is worthy of our trust with our eternal salvation— can you rest in him in that anxiety and in that suffering? So let's rest in Christ both for our salvation and let's trust in him as we as we walk through suffering because we know who he is. We know that he's a mighty warrior and we know that he fights for his people and so we can rest even in suffering. In fact, as I was talking about this this week, Chris Coughlin reminded me of Psalm 46, which Psalm 46 is this Psalm that starts off with these really comforting words. It starts off by telling us that God is our refuge and our strength, a helper who's always found in times of trouble. Then if you read the entirety of Psalm 46, after this, it gives this really like chaotic picture. It starts describing like this raging sea storm. And this storm on the sea is so great that the mountains are shaking, and even some mountains are falling into the sea. It's just, just a painting a picture of absolute chaos. But then Psalm 46 tells us that we need not be afraid, because the Lord is with us, and the God of Jacob is our stronghold. And then Chris reminded me of the words that end Psalm 46, and we'll have these up here on the screen for you. It says, he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So as you consider the anxieties and the threatening chaos of your life, consider also the mighty warrior God who's with you. Be still and know that he is God. Now this is what the Lord as a warrior means for his people, right? But what does it mean in the passage for the Lord to be a warrior to the Egyptians? Well, it certainly means their defeat, and it means their destruction, right? We see this in verses 4 through 6, which follow the declaration that the Lord is a warrior. It says, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. So whenever we meet the God of the Exodus, we encounter him as the Lord, a warrior who destroys his enemies. You see this? Now this, is, this is a harsh truth. But what I want us to do, I want us to give us just three observations about what the Lord's judgment on the Egyptians mean. Okay. First observation about the Lord's judgment on the Egyptians. It's just for one thing. It's no accident that the story of the Exodus begins with the Egyptians doing what? Throwing Hebrew baby boys into the Nile to drown them. And how does? what's the last dealing with, ex, with the Egyptians that happens in the book of Exodus? Their highest ranking officers get thrown into the sea and are drowned. We see this also because the Bible actually teaches us that all people stand under God's wrath and God's judgment. And if there's no intervention in that, it will mean eternal death and hell. But the Bible teaches that this is not because God is just like unreasonably grouchy or something like this. The Bible actually says this is because all people have rebelled against him. And we commit grievous sins both, against both God and against our neighbors. And so we see that the judgment that the world sits under is actually, it's actually just. And that God would be unjust to not punish sin. And I think you and I both agree that a world governed by an unjust God would be a terrifying world to live in. So we see that God's judgment against the Egyptians is just. Second, God's judgment against the Egyptians is necessary. What I mean by this is what happens to Israel if God doesn't judge Egypt? They're not free, they're not liberated from slavery. And so this gives us the truth, basically, that there is no salvation apart from judgment. And we see this in the Exodus, and this is all the more remarkable whenever we consider what Jesus has done for us, right? Because what what has Jesus done for us? What was the cross about? The cross was about God's justice being, being met. The cross was about God judging sin and punishing it but he judged it on the body of his son. And it's only because God's judgment fell on Jesus that we can receive God's forgiveness and that he can bring us in as his children. And so just as at the Exodus judgment was necessary also in our salvation, if Jesus doesn't doesn't go into the sea for us, then there's no hope for us. And so we see that God's judgment is... Absolutely necessary. And then third, God's judgment on the Egyptians is actually impartial if we look at the whole book of Exodus. So until this point in the book of Exodus, all of God's judgment has been against Egypt. But what happens after this? What happens to Israel in route to the promised land? What happens in Exodus 32 whenever they decide it's a good idea to make golden calves and to worship them? Thousands of Israelites die. That's not the last time that we encounter a story like that. And so as we encounter the God of the Exodus, this is not, God is not Israel's like pet. God's not their pet lion that they have on a leash and they let him out and he goes and takes care of their enemies and then they bring him back and, and keep them. The, the God of the Exodus will not be domesticated and he has no owner. And so as we look at the God of the Exodus tonight, let us not mock God and presume on his grace and his mercy when secretly we're rebelling against him in our lives. God's judgment is impartial. And so what we see with this is that because the Lord is a warrior who destroys his enemies, it's actually right for us to tremble before God. It is right for us to fear him. If you remember, whenever Israel sees the Egyptians dead on the seashore, on the eastern shore of the sea, what does it say they did? If you you see this, let's just reread it together. It says, That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And so we see that they actually feared the Lord whenever they saw his mighty work at the Red Sea. Now this brings, as you see these two points up on the screen, this is, this is a paradox, isn't it? We're supposed to trust in the Lord and to rest in him, but we're also supposed to tremble before the Lord and to fear him. It's very, it's very complicated, and I don't know that I can necessarily unravel it, but I do think that there are helpful ways to think about it. And to me, the best analogy to think through with it is the analogy of a father and his son. And this is a difficult analogy because uh, none of us in the room either are or have perfect fathers. And I also recognize that in a room this side, there's probably several of you who've had fathers who don't, um, don't represent God's character at all. So the analogy works only with the best of fathers. But I think the analogy still holds. Think about it like this. Is a child able to trust his father for the best of fathers? Yes, he certainly is. And why is this? Because a good father has only his child's best interest at heart and would wish no harm on his son or his daughter, right? So because of this, it's fitting that his child would trust him. But also, is it fitting that a child would fear his father? Well, maybe not in the way that a child is like afraid of the boogeyman or something like that. But a good father is a father who disciplines his children, right? And so it's also fitting that he would fear him. Or uh, maybe what we see in English would be more closer uh, would be something like he respects him. And so we see that because God is, A, not abusive, and because God is be not a pushover, it is right that we relate to Him, both with trust and with rest, but then also with fear and with trembling. And this is the God that we meet. This is the God that we meet in the Exodus. And so we have this, this great picture of the Lord as a warrior who fights for his people and who defeats his enemies. And this picture of God reaches culmination in verse 11, where it says, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And the answer to that, of course, is no one. There is none like the Lord. Now this brings us now, verse 13 is a hinge verse in the song at the sea. It's actually a hinge verse, actually within the entirety Of the book of Exodus, because what we see here is that attention is shifted from the past to the future. So God has defeated Pharaoh in Egypt; He's rescued Israel from slavery, and now here they are on the eastern shore of the sea. And it's almost like the rest of the song answers the question: "Like, well, where's this relationship heading now? Where's this going?" In other words, what is the goal of the Exodus? And verse 13 introduces the main theme. It says, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Key word here, God is bringing Israel to his holy dwelling. Then after this, in the next three verses, the song describes the Lord leading his people past all these other nations on the way to the promised land. He leads them past the the Edomites, he leads them past Moab, past the Philistines, and then finally past the peoples of Canaan. And even in the fact where just as the Egyptians became like a stone and were sunk in the sea earlier in the song, now the peoples of Canaan are like a stone as God leads his people into the promised land. And then verse 17 brings us back to this idea of God bringing Israel to his holy dwelling place. Here verse 17 you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance the place lord you made for your dwelling the sanctuary lord your hands established so these are the three the three ways that that verse describes where god is bringing his people where where is he bringing them to now that they're out of egypt one the mountain of your inheritance two the place that God has made for his dwelling and 3 the sanctuary that God's own hands have established now a lot of times whenever people see this part of the song they interpret this as meaning that God is bringing Israel to the promised land which is true right but how does the bible describe the promised land when when the bible wants to talk about God bringing Israel to the promised land there's like a set of phrases that it always uses the land that I swore to your father Abraham, the land that I swore to your ancestors, or a land flowing with milk and honey, right? This is how the Bible talks about the promised land. Notice that is not what we get in the Song of the Sea. Instead, we have all this language about God bringing Israel to his dwelling place, about God bringing Israel to a sanctuary he has made. This is temple language, and why, why are temples so important? Why is the temple of the Lord such an important thing? Well, a temple is the place where God dwells. And so we see actually what God is doing is God is bringing Israel to himself, to his own presence. And so we see what is part of the goal of the Exodus is that the Lord redeems his people so that they might dwell with him. And this is the image we get in verse 17 about God bringing his people to his dwelling place. And then this all of a sudden leads to just the high point of the whole song in verse 18 where the people declare the Lord will reign forever and ever. So what is the goal of the exodus? Like what is God after in rescuing Israel? Well, he's bringing them so that they would live in his presence and that he would reign over them forever as their king. This is the glorious vision of the entire exodus. And it's remarkable. Now, to catch the full import of what's going on here, we have to remember that the book of Exodus is not a freestanding book. And what I mean by this is that the book of Exodus is like Act 2 in a five-act play that we could call the Pentateuch or the Torah. So in other words, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are actually one book. And Exodus is one part of this book. So the song at the sea doesn't just look forward to God bringing Israel into the promised land. It also looks back to the early chapters of the book of Genesis. What happens at the beginning of Genesis? Well, it begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We begin in Genesis 1 and 2 with this idyllic portrait of what God created humanity to live as. We have Adam and Eve in the garden living in God's presence. But then we know all too well what happens in Genesis chapter 3. What do Adam and Eve do? Well, they rebel against the Lord. They disobey him, and as a result, a lot of things, a lot of bad things happen as a result. But the one that is especially pertinent is they're expelled from the Garden of Eden. And the most tragic part of that is that whenever they're expelled from the Garden of Eden, they're expelled from the presence of God. And what we see is that the rest of the Bible is telling a story about how God is now pursuing humanity to restore his dwelling with them. God is seeking to bring his people back to himself and to restore what was broken in the fall. And this is the vision of the song at the sea is that God is bringing his people back to himself now, if any of you have moved cities, then maybe you've thought about what it means, what the word home means. This is interesting for me because my parents in the last few years uh, actually moved out of the house that I grew up in. And they also, they actually they, uh, left my hometown as well. And so it's really unusual whenever Sarah and I go back to Louisiana, like for holidays, uh, it's really weird for me to drive past my old childhood home and, like, see other people's vehicles there um, and see that they've, you know, changed things in the yard. It's very odd for me. And it raises for me the question of, like, what does it mean to be home? And I think, that, I think that the place that home is, I think home is where the people you love are and where the people who love you are. And so for me, home is a very flexible concept because home is wherever Sarah and Emma are for me. And so in the same way, what we see in the scriptures is that for you as, as a human whom God has created, is that he's created you to where home is where he is. And the vision of this passage is that, is that God is calling us into his presence. It reminds me of the words, there was a, a great Christian teacher who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries, his name is Augustine. And Augusta, or maybe some of you might know him as St. Augustine. And he said these words He said, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our souls are restless until they find rest in you. So as we think back here onto the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15, I mentioned earlier that there's a lot of temple language here. Because there's so much temple language here, this passage becomes associated with King Solomon, because King Solomon built God's temple in the city of Jerusalem. Now, I think there's a lot of reasons why the Song of the Sea is actually looking beyond Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. One just quick one, we could, there's a lot more to discuss here, is because um, it says in verse 17 that this is the sanctuary that the Lord has made with his own hands. But in 1 Kings 8, Solomon is really clear that it's his hands who have created the temple. And there's a lot of other things here, but I say that because I want us to think about what does it mean for us as people who live on the other side of Jesus' first coming? What does it mean for us to experience the presence of God? And just real briefly, what does it mean for us to dwell in God's presence? I think this has past, present, and future implications. So past, looking back. Whenever Jesus came, he was the incarnation of God as a man. If you'll remember, Jonathan preached, uh, preached back in December. He talked about what it meant for Jesus to be Emmanuel, to be God with us. Remember, in John chapter 2, Jesus talks about the temple of his body. And so we see that what does it mean for like God's presence to be with us? Well, part of it, it means that he came to be with us in Jesus, whenever Jesus became a man. Second, in the present Uh, The book of 1 Corinthians has a lot to say about this. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about how our bodies are actually temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about how all of us together as a church are the temple of God's Spirit. Isn't that remarkable? And then also the book of Hebrews talks a lot about how because because Jesus has died in our place and has risen again, that we have direct access to God's throne in prayer. And so we see we experience God's presence in those very real ways now because of what Jesus has done for us. And we see, though, that still, we still look to the future. We still haven't experienced God's presence in the full sense that even the song at the sea depicts. So because of this, along with Israel, we can also look to the future of whenever our dwelling with God will be even more perfect. And this reminds me of the book of Revelation We see in Revelation chapter 21, hear this. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Isn't that a remarkable picture? And so we're still looking forward to this reality as well. And so with this, as we consider what it means for God to, to be bringing his people to his presence, I, I just want to say uh, two particular things about this. First of all, know this, that Christianity is ultimately about God mending your relationship with him. This is ultimately about God bringing you to himself. And so if if you're in the crowd tonight, if you're watching online tonight, and you want to know, like, why should I consider Christianity? Why should I put my faith in Jesus? Well, the number one reason is that the good news of Jesus offers you the chance to have peace with God. And to be with him and to know him. that's what this is all about. Now, the second thing that I want to ask is for those of you who already believe in Jesus, do you desire God's presence in your life? I think about this because I I was recently um, convicted when I was reading in the Psalms, um, particularly in Psalm 42. This passage comes out of a context where the psalmist is actually in a season of deep suffering. Oh, looks like I forgot to put that one into. too. We'll just read that. Hear what the psalmist says. He says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? And as I read this, I thought about, is this what my heart says when God feels distant to me? When God feels distant to me, do I say my my soul pants for you like a deer pants for water? Because I find that often I feel maybe indifference or preoccupation. And it was, it was really convicting for me as I was preparing this sermon because I was thinking, here I am, like I'm coming to, uh, to teach about like, this great truth about God's presence with us, about God bringing us to his dwelling place. And here I am, I have unlimited access to God's presence in prayer. And I just don't. I just don't seize it. I don't seek after the Lord with it. So what, what I pray will happen is that as we, as we meditate on the song at the sea, I pray that it would stir up your heart to seek God's presence in your life. Not, not out of guilt, but out of a desire to know God and a desire to be with him and to know him. And so we see that, because the Lord is redeeming his people to dwell with him, we should long, we should long to be with him. And This is what the Song of the Sea is calling us to. So I want us to come back now to the two questions that, that I brought up at our introduction. Right, I said we had two questions. Number one, why can we sing? And number two, what should we sing? So we've seen the portrait of the Lord in the song at the sea as a warrior who delivers his people and destroys his enemies. And we see what he's doing in the Exodus is that he's bringing his people to his presence so that they'll live with him and he'll be their king. So why can we join in on this song? Well, for this, I think that, first of all, Jeremiah chapter 23 gives us a very, very... um, Very important truth here that helps us with this. Jeremiah 23 is a passage that is about the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah is God's promised king, whom we know to be Jesus. And it's about the salvation that he's going to bring. So look at the words here of Jeremiah 23. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. Okay, now there's a lot going on here in this passage, and I've left out some things, which I'd love to talk about more with you. But what I want you to see is that the basic point here is this, is that whenever Jeremiah talks about the Messiah coming, the Son of David coming, It says that he's going to work work a work of salvation that is so great that people will forget about the Exodus. that they're not going to talk about the Exodus anymore because he's going to work a work of salvation that far surpasses it. And they'll sing about that instead. And you and I know that the son of David is Jesus. So why is it that we can join in and worship the God of the Exodus as we read this song at the sea? Well, we, we can do this because we have met the God of the Exodus in Jesus of Nazareth. And we have come to know him as our mighty warrior, who is our Savior. And we have come to know that he is our God, who deserves our highest worship, and who has actually come to make his dwelling with us. We know that he is our king, and that he will reign forever and ever. That is why we can join into in this song of worship. And then second, what is it? What can we sing? What should we sing? Well, I think that we should sing the song of the sea. We should exult in the God of the Exodus, the mighty warrior, and we should hope in the goal of the Exodus that our dwelling will be with the Lord. So just let me ask you, is this the song that your life is singing? This is what God is inviting you to join in on tonight. You pray with me. Father, we thank you so much um, just for the scriptures tonight, Lord, we just thank you for your wisdom, Lord, and how even though we have so many books in the Bible, Lord, they're written over such a large period of time, we thank you, Lord, that they tell one story. And Lord, we thank you for the great work of salvation that you've been working all the way from creation until now. And Lord, I, I just pray, Lord, that even as as we sing now, Lord, and as we go home and get ready to live this week. I pray, Lord, that you would just help for us to see you as you really are. Lord, that we would see you as a mighty warrior. And that because of that, that we would both trust in you, Lord, but that we would also fear you. And God, just help for us to long for your presence, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would, each one of us, that we would seek you this week. It's in Christ's name that I pray, amen.